We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Protests have sprung up across China asking for an end to the Chinese Communist Party's zero COVID policy. That policy has asked residents of the country to obey strict quarantine guidelines. And some cities have endured lockdowns in order of magnitude more intense than anything we ever saw in the United States. On strictly public health terms, the zero COVID policy has no doubt saved lives. Through the whole pandemic, just a few thousand people have died of COVID in China. But many Chinese people are now questioning the trade-off between the policy's intent and the collateral damage that it is causing to people's lives and the country's economy. We talk with Chinese experts about the protests and how the government is responding. That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In the first year of the pandemic, China's response to COVID went from lethargic to quite widely celebrated. While many countries in Europe and the Americas struggled to contain the virus and watched cases and deaths spiral upward, the Chinese zero COVID policies, though harsh, were seen as an effective deployment of overwhelming state power. Now, though, as the rest of the world, or most of it, has resumed normal life, normal life with its share of difficulties and problems, But normal life, nonetheless, the Chinese zero-COVID approach is under fire in the country. To talk about protests there and what they could mean for the country's political and economic future, we're joined by Carrie Allen, China media analyst at the BBC. Welcome, Carrie. Hi. Victor Xi, chair in China and Pacific Relations at the University of California, San Diego. Welcome back, Victor. Thanks for having me. And Nancy Chen, a professor at the Kellogg School of Business at Northwestern. Uh, She founded the China Econ Lab, which is an independent international organization that promotes research about the Chinese economy. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, Carrie, let's start with you. I think to understand these protests, we really need to talk about what zero COVID has meant for people living in China. Can you talk to us about what this set of policies really has been? It's very much been that if you test positive for COVID-19, everybody on your entire street or in your apartment complex will be locked down. And China is the most populous country in the world. So that's a population with 1.4 billion people. And you've got very condensed cities that have tens of millions of people within the population. So cases of the virus can spread rapidly. And the policy that if you test positive, you need to be locked down. Everybody on the street needs to be locked down. That hasn't really changed for the last three years. So this is what's really fueled people's anger. The idea that they they can't get back to life as normal, that if they just go to the supermarket and somebody in the same supermarket tests positive, they they might not go home. They might be taken to a quarantine center. Mm. Victor Xi, you know, when we talk about lockdown, you know, this is a different kind of lockdown from what we in the United States called a quote unquote lockdown. Can you describe it a little bit? 
Uh, yeah, so in the U.S., ultimately, it was at the discretion of the households, uh, even though in 2020, people were highly discouraged from leaving their homes uh, when it's not necessary. Uh, in China, it has been uh, mandatory. Uh, and China has had the state capacity to do so because of uh, residential committees. Uh, these are kind of quasi-government workers who are at every single neighborhood in urban China and have been enforcing uh, lockdowns, preventing people from leaving their neighborhoods, preventing outsiders, even delivery people, from entering uh, neighborhoods that are under lockdown. Um, you know, this has caused a lot of stress, you know, especially for people who can't move around uh, very easily. Uh, some of them, uh, or people who really need uh, deliveries of different things like food and medicine uh, and has been the source of a lot of tragedies. Yeah. You know, Carrie mentioned um, the quarantine facilities, and I wanted to talk briefly about those too as well. If you watch videos of the protests, sometimes you'll see uh, that people are saying basically no more PCR tests. Uh, and one of the reasons is that, as she noted, testing means you go, you, you don't get to quarantine your home. Generally speaking, you've gone to what were called centralized quarantine facilities. Um, what is that for, for Americans who may, you know, we talked about this a lot at the very beginning of the pandemic, but most people probably haven't really been thinking about a centralized quarantine facility since then. What are those like and, and what happens there? Victor, sorry. Oh, yeah. So, um, so it runs a gamut of, you know, a reasonably, uh, you know, decent hotel. Uh, so for foreigners who go to China, they go to these so-called centralized quarantine facilities, but it's basically like a three-star hotel. Uh, so that's sort of okay. But uh, in many cases for people in China who uh, receive a red code, um, they go to a giant kind of warehouse uh, where, you know, uh, hundreds, sometimes hundreds of cots are just uh, put on the ground. They're sleeping next to each other. Uh, the biggest complaint has been on the bathroom facility. So, you know, these warehouses, uh, they're not meant for people to live in. So oftentimes they would only have one or two bathrooms, uh, which is shared by hundreds of people, uh, the plumbing overflows, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so th they're really not nice places to spend. Um, you know, sometimes some people have had to spend like weeks in some of these facilities. Uh, so it's really quite, uh, you know, challenging. Yeah. Carrie Allen with the with the BBC, you heard Victor mention uh, red code, uh, let's say a red code on, on your phone, um, in part because one of the things that has enabled this Chinese zero COVID policy has been really quite deep state surveillance, largely using people's cell phones as a way of keeping track of them, as well as indicating to them when they needed to quarantine or, or do whatever. It absolutely has, yes, especially in major cities. Again, these ones with huge populations like Beijing and Shanghai. What has been the case is that you you have to get tested for COVID-19 roughly every two to three days. And this, um, this COVID test is entered into your phone and you get a QR code. And this is, it's like a traffic light. It's either green, yellow or red. And you need to show a green code in order to be able to access most public buildings, most public transport, 
And that's the only way you can get around. So if again, if somebody tests positive on your street, you, you might get a yellow code or a red code. And that means that you might not be able to get on a bus to go to the supermarket. You, you might not be able to go into the office to work. So the idea is that you have to get a green code. And I mean, we've had track and trace here in the UK, but it's it's not as strict as this, that it can literally stop you from entering buildings, stop you from getting on public transport. Yeah. You know, uh, Nancy Chen, governments around the world, I mean, they've all tried to strike a balance between retaining a sort of functioning society as well as a functioning economy and the health of their people. As we hear about these measures, it strikes me that it must be incredibly difficult just to, like, run a small business, say, uh, in in China. So what has this all done to just the kind of basic functioning of the economy and society? You're absolutely right. It's been incredibly difficult for economic functions to continue as normal during lockdowns. Just a few days ago, I was talking to an entrepreneur from China, and she was complaining about how, you know, factories can't get their products to uh, to stores. Stores can't get their products to cu- customers, and it's just a complete uh, it's just a complete breakdown of the supply chain from the factory, from the manufacturer, all the way to the consumers. And the effects, the economic effects, are just tremendous. You know, when we look at the estimates that economists have done, and these were done before the Shanghai lockdown, just, you know, on using data from much milder lockdowns, they were estimating that these supply chain breakdowns, if uh, based on based on what had already happened, if you have a month lockdown of a city like Beijing or Shanghai, that would reduce GDP by 4%. This is total mm. Chinese GDP. Mm. Wow. So huge, huge numbers there because of the the size of the Chinese economy. Absolutely. You know, and in the end, Shanghai wasn't locked down for one month. It was locked down for two months. And it wasn't just Shanghai. You know, we don't have great uh, data at the moment. But as far as we know, you know, at different points in China, 45 cities were locked down in April. In September, it was 70 cities that were on some type of a lockdown. And these are just the official ones. There are also a lot of lockdowns that are happening because local officials feel like they need to implement it in order to satisfy the government policy. But these aren't even accounted for in, you know, in the news. Yeah. Victor Xi from University of California, San Diego. Let's talk a little bit about the protests. What do you make of the scale and breadth of the protests? Uh, so the scale in terms of the number of people participating is not especially large. Uh, you know, we have clumps of hundreds of people across many different cities. But uh, in terms of the geographical spread and also the demands that were voiced by the protesters, really, it is something that we have not seen since 1989. These are protests uh, taking place across, you know, over a dozen cities. Uh, you know, again, a few hundred to a thousand people in every case. Uh, but, uh, you know, of course, mostly they uh, ask for less COVID restrictions, but there are quite a few instances of protesters asking for fundamental political reform. Also, even at a place like Tsinghua University, which is uh, an elite university that has produced uh, pretty much you know, half the top leaders in China, including uh, Xi Jinping himself. Um, There were calls for uh, the rule of law 
and freedom, you know, which, of mm. course, uh, would suggest fundamental political change in China. So that's really, really striking. And it's something that we have not seen for several decades. Yeah. Carrie, what has the government's response been to these protests? Well, they haven't acknowledged them whatsoever in state media. So it, it's it's more or less that there's just there's no mention of them whatsoever. In, instead, what there's been in newspapers, um, on broadcasters, there's been this emphasis that China is constantly changing its its guidelines and making them in line with scientific and technical guidelines for what works best with COVID-19. So they're really doubling down and saying our policies are the correct ones. Uh, and yeah, protests long term, it's been the case since 1989, which was actually the year that the internet came to China, that any mention of any protest whatsoever, there will be censors who will remove mention of protests, pictures of protests, videos of protests online. So there's the idea that dissent just doesn't exist in the country. And yeah, these are these are protests that are happening on a large scale. So it's a major operation involving thousands of people to literally scrub social media posts and make sure that people don't see these. Yeah. You know, I understand a BBC reporter, one of your colleagues, Ed Lawrence, was detained uh, and, and beaten, according to reports. Is he safe now? He is. He's a very good friend of mine. So when I saw I saw the video of him being led away by police myself on Sunday night and I, straight away I messaged him and said, please let me know you're OK. He's he's absolutely fine. He's he's back reporting again. And uh, he he has said that the police are leaving him alone. So he's he, he's able to carry on doing his job. And yeah, he's he's perfectly safe and, and sound. Thank you. Good to good to hear that. We're talking about the protests in China and what long-term impact they might have with Kerry Allen, China media analyst at the BBC. Victor Xi, chair in China and Pacific Relations at University of California, San Diego. And Nancy Chan, a professor of managerial economics and decision scientist at Kellogg at Northwestern, founded the China Econ Lab. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about protests in China of really substantial scale and spread across the whole country and what long-term impact they might have. We're joined by Nancy Chen, a professor at Kellogg at Northwestern, who founded the China Econ Lab, which does independent research on the Chinese economy. Uh, Victor Xi, chair in China and Pacific Relations at UCSD, and Carrie Allen, the China media analyst at the BBC. We would love to hear from you. Have you or your family and friends in China experienced a, a lockdown or had to be quarantined? 
how did that how did that go for them and how did, have they responded? You can give us a call 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum and the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, I, I want to just ask the very obvious question here. It seems like this zero COVID approach is causing the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping a lot of trouble. So, Victor Xi, why not do something else? Um, yeah, so I think it's going to be a process to change policies fundamentally. Uh, you have to remember that China spent pretty much the past three years trumpeting uh, the su- you know successful approach in controlling COVID up until recent months. Um, China, you know, after the initial wave of uh, very tragic infections and deaths in Wuhan, the Chinese government was able to um, control the spread of COVID um, Mm -hmm. at a time when uh, in most of the countries in the world, COVID spread pretty much uncontrollably, leading to millions of deaths. Um, You know, up until the end of 2021, we have had a very, very low uh, spread of COVID, very low number of deaths in China. Uh, and so the Chinese government made a lot of that fact, you know, that uh, it clearly proves the superiority of the Chinese political system, uh, and therefore the Chinese uh, Chinese citizens should support the Chinese government and be proud of it, etc. Um, and for the Chinese government to suddenly change course and to open up and to allow the, the sort of rampant spread of COVID, um, I think that will create another wave of legitimacy crisis, mm. uh, maybe among a different population, among older people, among people who work for the Chinese government, uh, who, you know, of course, was at the forefront of trying to enforce the COVID lockdown policies. Uh, so I think either way that they go, they will create some kind of uh, problem with with some segment of the population. Yeah. You know, let's uh, go to the phones. I mean, I think some people have some some thoughts here. Uh, Paul in Albany. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to point out my understanding of the numbers. Uh, China has a population of 1.3 billion. The United States has a population of approximately 300 million, one quarter or less. The Chinese have lost about 50,000 people, is my understanding, to COVID deaths. Uh, America has lost over a million um, why the Chinese are not using a better vaccine, even the Russian vaccine seems to be better than the one they have. Mm-hmm. And uh, contrary to reports, I understand it's as good as the Pfizer vaccine. But well, Paul, uh, they're they're certainly keeping the attrition to a bare minimum, right? In spite of the uh, right, and I think you know nature of their policies. Yeah, you know, Paul, I think this this is a really interesting question because they're. There are things about the Chinese policy that have worked, uh, um, like you were just saying, Victor, you know, particularly in terms of controlling the spread uh, of the virus. What's really interesting, and and I think, Nancy, maybe you can you can speak to this. There are other things the Chinese government could have done, right, like um, run a more intense vaccination campaign, for example, that we actually have not seen. So can you talk a little bit about you know, aside from the zero COVID control the spread kind of policy, what were the other sort of public health policies that have been at play? Sure. I mean, you're exactly right. You know, in the beginning, really, uh, before we had vaccines, all we really had 
were lockdowns to keep people safe. But then as vaccines were innovated, you know, that gave policymakers a second tool. And although vaccines aren't perfect, what we've seen is that they have been quite effective in lowering infection rates and even more so mortality rates or just, you know, the rates of being severely ill. And then China differed from the rest of uh, the rest of the world, or I should say the West, like other high-income countries in a couple of ways. One is that they decided to use only the domestically produced vaccine, which is effective. It's not completely ineffective, although it's not as effective as the one that Pfizer has produced. And the second thing that's differed is that the vaccination rates have been very low for the elderly. And that's a big difference with say the US or European countries, right? Like in the US, it was the elderly who were vaccinated first. And when we look at the data, it's the elderly that who have the highest vaccination rates. In China, it's the opposite. The young have almost a perfect compliance, a near perfect compliance to vaccines. The elderly, the, the elderly population, those over 65, even those over 80, have a very low rate of vaccination rates. Mm. And part of that is, you know, if you talk to people, is that they're just really afraid of side effects. So for example, you know, my elderly relatives in Shanghai, have, they still haven't been vaccinated. They weren't vaccinated before the lockdown. During the lockdown, you know, there was some discussion of getting vaccinated, but they couldn't get it done. And now, they're, to, to somewhat to my surprise, they're still not vaccinated. And it's all because of this fear of side effects. So these individuals are doing a cost-benefit analysis, right? They say, they think if we get vaccinated, what's going to happen? If we don't vac get vaccinated, what's going to happen? And the way they see it is that if they don't get vaccinated, the probability of getting ill is very low. And part of that is driven by the very low COVID rates in the beginning, right? That's driving their beliefs. And then they think if we do get vaccinated, we might have severe side effects and, uh, you know, and suffer problems from that. And I think that's just a result of poor messaging from public health mm -hmm. officials in China. You know, Carrie Allen, you are the China media analyst <laughs> for uh, for the BBC. And we oftentimes make a lot of how effective um, Chinese state information is and the control of information at the at really the state and, and Communist Party level. Um, what do we see in terms of the messaging that Nancy was just talking about? Like, it feels like you should be able to get people to believe the vaccines are safe, given all the apparatus that's in place there. Absolutely. And and one of the messages that's been very strong in recent weeks, especially with this escalation of an elderly focused vaccine campaign has been that China doesn't only have needle vaccines, it also has inhaler vaccines. There's, there's a company called CanSino that have developed these. So they're less invasive, they're, they're good for vulnerable people. And that has been the message that's, that's tried to tell people, if you're going to receive a vaccine, this one can work for you as well. Like this, this one might be better. Uh, but yes, as, as Nancy mentioned, there has there, there hasn't been promotion of foreign vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna. The message has very much been that China has has had heavy production of vaccines, domestic vaccines, and it's been tailoring them to the Omicron variants that have been appearing. Um, so, so this has been been the message that's been coming out in the last few weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, Victor, I. I want to stay on this vaccination question. I mean, what do you make of the fact that there has been pretty widespread vaccine hesitancy among older Chinese people, despite the fact that it seems like this would be the off-ramp 
for the zero COVID policy, which is is causing us political trouble? Uh, yeah, so um, I, I think, you know, there are a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, maybe the older generations have a certain beliefs about the, the impact of Western medicines and uh, also the vulnerability of their own cons constituency or, you know, their own bodies uh, to, to uh, things like vaccines. Uh, but in one of the research papers that I have done, uh, where we looked at state media uh, in both Hong Kong and in mainland China, as well as in Taiwan and uh, other places, um, the Chinese uh, state-owned media, uh, they do portray Western vaccines in a more negative way compared to Chinese vaccines. Um, so that doesn't explain general vaccine hesitancy, but um, it could, you know, if there is some hesitancy uh, for using the imported uh, Pfizer vaccines, it could explain that uh, because uh, the Chinese government has tried to portray these Western vaccines more negatively, um, presumably to bolster usage uh, and favorability of domestically produced uh, vaccines. Uh, but nonetheless, we, we do see some uh, information manipulation by the Chinese government. Hmm. Here's another question, Carrie Allen, maybe this one goes to you. How prepared is China in its different regions for a widespread COVID outbreak? I mean, there has been such success at, at containing these outbreaks through these you know pretty heavy duty lockdown and, and quarantine measures. So if there were a widespread COVID outbreak, like what do we think would happen? How prepared is the country? Well, the country long term had a good strategy whereby if there was an outbreak in one city, that city would lock down. And again, because there's such a huge population, what could then happen is China could send in medical experts from different regions it had the capability to do this and also people to make large makeshift hospitals to be able to deal with the rise of cases in that community the problem that china faces now is as the years have gone on and the vaccine um as the virus has mutated um the 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 virus has become much more transmissible and uh, and you've got outbreaks in every chinese region all 31 provincial level regions so with this zero COVID strategy still being the case that if somebody tests positive, they have to be locked down. It's very difficult now to send in people from different regions. And it does feel like a very telling moment where China is struggling to come up with a strategy to, to deal with these cases because it is recognizing that, yeah, they, they could grow very rapidly. And, and China has a huge aging population due to the one-child policy that the the older demographic are much bigger than the younger demographic. So that means that a lot of elderly people could get sick very quickly. And it it, it is very concerned about this. Hmm. Let's bring in another caller, Alex from Mountain View. Welcome. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Uh, there's a tendency uh, for Americans and Westerners in general to see these protests as leading to the eventual toppling of the government. But I want to point out that no foreign powers imposing the autocratic government on China. It actually exists because the majority of Chinese support it. We'll know whether these protests lead to the change of government uh, because of the majority being opposed to the, to the government itself only after these protests play out to the end. Um, that basically is my comment. Yeah. Uh, thanks, for that, Alex. You know, um, Victor Xi, there, there is widespread support for Xi Jinping's government. I, I think the question... Usually, how do we know? 
<laughs> What's the what is our, our our different lines of evidence here? Uh, so um, you know, people have done surveys. Basically, uh, of course, in recent years, it has mainly been online surveys. Uh, where the sample is pretty biased in some cases. But nonetheless, up until the end of uh, 2021, we have found, uh, and you know, UCSD, we have a, in the 21st Century China Center, we do do three surveys a year of online participants. Uh, and so even early this year, we have found a very high level of trust and support for the Chinese government, especially at the central level. Um, nonetheless, you know, besides the sample by sampling bias, we have seen that this support can be quite fragile. And, you know, I think, uh, and also we have to bear in mind that what has happened to people in China is also very extreme. You know, so in, in many cases, they've been unemployed uh, for months. Uh, of course, that happened in the U.S., but then remember, we have the stimulus where people receive thousands of dollars in aid from the government. That's not the case in China. So there, we have not seen a massive demand side stimulus uh, by the Chinese government. So when people face such a prolonged uh, period of hardship, I, I think inevitably support for the government is going to diminish. Uh, in some cases, or in many cases, apparently, uh, it, the stress is so much that they're willing to go on the street to protest, even though I think everyone in China knows that there would be repercussions that... Mm -hmm. They're likely to be detained. Uh, they're likely to face, you know, some serious consequences. But in a sense, if you have been forced to be locked down either at home or in some of these quarantine facilities for days or months at a time, what is really the difference between a short jail term and uh, being in lockdown? Uh, so I think for for many people, they've reached that stage where they just don't care anymore. Mm. Uh, you know, one of our listeners, uh, Rebecca, tweets to say, you know, regarding the caller saying China's only lost 50,000 people, and I think that WHO actually has them at 30,000 people, the notion that China is being transparent and honest about the number of COVID deaths is completely laughable, especially when you add in the efficacy of their vaccine and lower rate of elderly, elderly vaccination. Um, Nancy, I wanted to ask you about this one because I, I assume in your research on the Chinese economy, you end up dealing with the statistical um, ins and outs of the, the Chinese government. How much faith do you put in the statistics that are coming from the Chinese public health authorities? Um, do you think they've been able to keep deaths that low through the measures that we've been talking about? I think it's not impossible that deaths have been quite low, whether we should take the 30,000 or 50,000 number literally, you know, is another question. And there's several, there's several things to keep in mind. One is just that, you know, generally for any government going through a pandemic, it's difficult to get an accurate mortality count. Uh, and that's because, you know, some people are dying for reasons and it, that's related to COVID and maybe it's just not counted as COVID. And also the fact that there's so much resources spent on COVID means that we're crowding out resources spent on other diseases. So it might, so more people might be dying of heart attacks because they can't get to the hospitals in time during these lockdowns. And right now those deaths are not counted as part of the COVID mortality. And that's something we'll have to look later when we have data on total mortality for the entire country to see whether total mortality for all sorts of reasons, not just COVID, was higher during these pandemic years. And then, so those, those issues exist for all countries. 
And on top of that, for China, you have the concern of the political motivations of data reporting. So China has a history of understating data that doesn't make the political regime look good or exaggerating data that emphasizes the greatness of the regime. So that's another thing we have to worry about. You know, Carrie Allen, I wanted to ask about the effect that this has had on school children, you know, major debate here um, in the United States. Given the kinds of quarantine and lockdown measures that we're talking here, what's happened to the kids? Well, one thing that's been really interesting to me is there, there was a period of time in China when you would see daily reports on U.S. kids and how it affected them. China very much wanted to stress that this was a big problem in the U.S., that children in the US were facing physical and mental health problems as a a result of COVID-19. And and as state media saw it, the lax government rules that were applied in the US. But but in China, I've seen similar struggles myself. There's there's been this whole campaign of of tongue-ping culture, this this idea of tongue-ping being lying flat, that people particularly particularly young people now are are so burnt out, so frustrated, being told that they constantly need to be embracing the government's message, doing more, helping out with the economy. They feel stressed out. And children in particular, I remember when lockdowns were first lifted in some lockdown communities, children were still going back to school wearing masks and they were crying because they couldn't recognize their teachers and their friends anymore. So so you could see that this had a big impact on children, the, the lockdowns in particular, because it was the case in China that for a long period of time, children were studying from home and they they did feel isolated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking about the protests in China, what long-term impact they might have politically. We're joined by Carrie Allen, China media analyst at the BBC. Victor Xi, chair in China and Pacific Relations at the University of California, San Diego. And Nancy Chen, professor at Kellogg School of Business there at Northwestern. She founded the China Econ Lab, which does independent research on the Chinese economy. Have you or your family or friends experienced lockdown or quarantine in, in China? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. 
I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about the protests in China and what long-term impact they might have with Victor Xi, chair in China and Pacific Relations at UCSD, Carrie Allen, China Media Analyst at the BBC, and Nancy Chen, professor at Kellogg School of Business at Northwestern. I want to turn a little bit to the local links that we have here uh, with China, and let's go to the phones. Mr. D in San Francisco. Um. Hi, uh, I live in the Bay Area and I went to one of the protests here um, over the past week. And I think um, I went because I felt the urge to join the protesters in China who are risking their lives by taking it to the streets. And I wanted to show solidarity, uh, especially with the most marginalized groups. And I think they really inspired me and my fellow protesters. Um, and I think many of, many of us uh, experienced a political slash activist moment for the first time in our lives uh, that desire to speak truth to power has been suppressed um, by our upbringing and education and the overall political structure in China for so long. And we're glad that we were able to rediscover that when we were um, joined by hundreds, uh, hundreds of other people mm. out there mourning the victims of the room chief fire and also uh, the zero COVID policy. Yeah. Uh, stay stay with us, Mr. D. We have some uh, tape, thanks to Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez. Uh, it's protesters singing in solidarity with anti-lockdown protesters in China earlier this week in San Francisco's Portsmouth Square. Mr. Uh, Mr. D, um, San Francisco, what were the protests like for you? Um, you heard a little little clip of it there. Yeah, it was um, solemn and it was a empowering moment uh, that I think helped a lot of us rediscover our courage uh, and our sort of commitment to a freer and more open society in China. Uh, and I think it's also um, really heartwarming to see so many people come together I know that a lot of us come from different backgrounds and we have different political views, but um, we were able to gather there uh, peacefully and solemnly in remembrance of the victims. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that was also a case in point that um, when, when we're, people in China are given the moment and given the choice, they can make uh, very well-informed decisions and conduct democratic conversations in a very peaceful and respectful manner. Thank you, uh, Mr. D. You know, Victor Xi, we oftentimes think about like the power of diasporic populations back in the in the home country to, you know, show solidarity, you know, in protests, sometimes financially, sometimes in, in other ways. How how important or or is it important at all um to have for these kinds of protests to solidarity protests outside of China, does it have any impact inside the country? Uh, yeah, no, I think the protests both in China and also overseas are having um, a very enormous medium term impact, actually, I would say. So in the literature on protests, um, one of the deepest insights, I think, uh, is from this professor, Tamir Koran, who's at Duke University. Uh, his insight is that uh, basically, you know, with protests, especially in authoritarian regimes, 
uh, people who previously have been very isolated from each other, you know, even though there there had been, you know, very high level of dissatisfaction uh, against the Chinese government, but they didn't know that other people felt the same way. But when people show up on the streets, they all realize that actually there are quite a number of people who feel the same as them. Uh, this is true, you know, especially true in China, but also true um, outside of China, where, uh, of course, a lot of people who uh, have been unhappy with Chinese government have left China and especially come to the United States. Uh, but they didn't know that there were so many others like them. Uh, but with these protests, they suddenly realized that there's actually quite a large community of people who are just like them. Um, and so even though in the short term, you know, in China, um, there are crackdowns and so on and so forth, but this knowledge, uh, this uh, information revelation uh, in, in, you know, this is what we call <laughs> in the literature, mm -hmm. uh, that will encourage them to participate in further protests. And of course, this mechanism would be especially strong overseas where there's not the threat of arrest when you participate in, in uh, anti-Chinese government protests. Um, so I think this will have long lasting impact actually. You know, one thing that uh, one of our listeners, Lala, writes in to say, following up on the earlier Chinese vaccine trust issues, uh, Lala writes in to say, my grandma in China is not vaccinated because we don't trust the Chinese vaccine at all. And if any side effects happen to her, it would be very hard for her to get treated in the hospital. The hospital is basically turning away patients not related to COVID. And I don't think she ever had the Chinese vaccine. We did not see any publicity stunt of him getting jabbed. Um, I wanted to turn to another uh, Bay Area link, um, that is to say uh, Foxconn. Uh, Apple, obviously, here, uh, as well as other electronics uh, companies, uh, use Foxconn to manufacture a lot of their, their goods as contractors. Um, Carrie, can you tell us a little bit about uh, protests, recent protests at Foxconn factory? Yes, there were large-scale protests at, uh, at a factory in Zhengzhou, um, which is a city in the central center east of China, I would say. And this is a huge factory, and uh, Zhengzhou had seen a huge outbreak of cases in the community that, that spread to the factory. And originally, we saw protests last month at the beginning of last month with people literally taking their suitcase and fleeing the factory because... They didn't want to be locked down. Sorry, I say protest. This was people literally just running because they didn't want to be mm. stuck in a lockdown. And then weeks later, what happened was Foxconn had a recruitment drive trying to pull people into come and work at the factory. It, it didn't see much uptake because people were, were worried about this. And so what happened was even members of the People's Liberation Army were brought in to help out. But there, there was some support. Local people did join and they worked at the factory. But then what happened was there were still people who were testing positive on the premises and there was no space to quarantine them because the factory had been closed off due to these earlier cases. Mm. So people who were COVID positive were literally sharing space with people who had just started work there. And this is what really exacerbated the protests that in this particular area. Um, there were people who were just so angry about this. They, they, wanted to leave again they were told that they couldn't because of the earlier disruptions and yeah this was this was one of many protests ahead of the big protests that we saw last weekend hmm. you know nancy why do protests like this at a foxconn factory like how do you see them mattering in the in the broader scheme of either these protests in china or in the kind of relationship that apple has with these chinese manufacturers so I think in China, these protests are very important in, in the sense that 
Um, so protests in general, large protests in general are very rare. Uh, and when they do happen, you know, once in a blue moon, they're often um, pushed by young people like students like Tiananmen Square or what we're seeing in Shanghai and Beijing. When So the government sort of, they're sort of used to that in, on some level. What really worries the government is when the workers start to protest. So, I mean, we saw that in Tiananmen Square, you know, the government put up with the students protesting for a really long time. But when the workers from nearby factories went on strike and started to come on protests, that's when they, that's, that really changed the tone of the political reaction. And so one possibility is that these Jinzhou factory protests will trigger a similar reaction this time around. And for companies like Apple, you know, for oh, Apple and other American companies working in uh, working in China, they have to start thinking politically. It's not just a matter of making money. They have to think about, you know, under what conditions do they want to work in China? And part of that is political, you know, specific to China. And part of that is just the standard discussion of labor rights, like under what labor conditions will American companies, should American companies work in other countries that might be able to produce things uh, at a lower cost? Mm. Victor Xi, you know, the country's leader, Xi Jinping, recently you know, got another term of, of power. Um, and, you know, some people have been kind of thinking that this is a more or less lifetime appointment in this case, despite the fact that that's not, uh, generally speaking, how the Communist Chinese, Chinese Communist Party policies are supposed to work. How much do you think these protests are actually about that? And how much do you think they really, really are about the COVID lockdowns? Um, well, I mean, I personally believe that he is in for a lifetime tenure just because, you know, once you violate the norm of serving just two terms, there's really no mechanism to limit it further. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, just like Chairman Mao, I mean, so remember the majority uh, of the first kind of 30 years of the People's Republic of China uh, was governed under Chairman Mao, who had lifetime tenure. Uh, and I, you know, I, my new book, Coalitions of the Week, of course, is about how Mao managed to have lifetime tenure. I do think that it it has some impact on um, the expectations of ordinary people in China, because before, um, you know, after kind of the two term limit was instituted in China, uh, kind of in the early 1990s, um, you know, people may be unhappy with uh, the leadership of China, but then at least they can tell themselves that, oh, well, there's going to be a leadership change, you know, in a few years time, and maybe there would be a dramatic uh, change of policies. Um, these days, that is no longer the expectation. You know, if uh, Xi Jinping himself prefers a set of policies, uh, and of course, you know, COVID policies could change, uh, but on some of these other policies like uh, strict ideological control, that is unlikely to change uh, in the coming years under his tenure. Um, so then um, that on the margin could motivate people to protest. Yeah. I mean, is it naive to think that these protests will lessen Xi's grip on power or cause the Chinese Communist Party to change course? Um. You know, I no, no, his grip on power in the party is pretty absolute uh, at this point, just because uh, he has inserted a very trusted followers uh, in the People's Liberation Army and also in the internal security services, 
once you control those two parts of the Chinese government um, well, then you, you know, you pretty much have all the levers of power. Um, so I, I don't think that will change, but we have seen in terms of COVID policy, we have seen uh, some softening of COVID policies because of the protests. And of course that could be tactical, but I think, you know, the economic costs of uh, COVID lockdown, you know, as Nancy and others have pointed out already, um, at, you know, is, is quite uh, substantial. And so I think a lot of people uh, around Xi Jinping probably are beginning to suggest to him that, <clears throat> that COVID policies need to change or the Chinese economy is really not going to be in a good place. And, and that also will limit uh, the implementation of his other policy objectives, such as making China, I mean, you know, if, if you have weak economic growth, China literally cannot become the largest economy in the world, cannot become a premier power in the world. Uh, and that is a main policy objective of Xi Jinping over the medium term. Um, so, so I think he is changing policies, but partly because of popular pressure, but I think also partly because of, um, you know, his other medium term objectives. Yeah. You know, uh, one of our listeners, William, uh, wrote in to ask, uh, and this one's coming to you, Nancy, what's the explanation for why during 2020 and 2021, while the U.S. GDP declined, China's GDP continued to increase? That difference would seem strange since China had this lockdown policy, which presumably would have kept workers at home. That's a great question. Um, part of that is because during the earlier parts of COVID, COVID rates were very low in China. There was a complete lockdown, uh, not just of China, but also most other parts of the world. So there just wasn't much disease in China. And because of that, and because of their ability to do rapid lockdowns when there was a, a low, low infection breakouts, they were able to keep producing, keep manufacturing. And this was at a time when, so Chinese exports actually increased during this time, right? So during COVID, uh, there, was, there was a lot of consumer demand from overseas for manufactured goods, and China was able to fill those. And that explains a lot of the Chinese growth during, the, uh, during those years. Yeah. Also, William, if you want to check out, you know, Adam Tooze's book, Shut Down, kind of goes through some of these like early months, too, and, and kind of describes the way that the, the state really deployed itself to keep things uh, running and keep COVID low. Um, you know, uh, Carrie Allen, you're going to be obviously you and your colleagues are going to be monitoring these protests as they as they go forward. One of our listeners writes in to say, Gabby, you know, this is the first time we're seeing the Chinese and Uyghurs standing together against the oppression of the Chinese government. I feel very proud as the protests spread across China. It's important not to forget the voices and demands of the Uyghurs. And it, and it is quite striking when you watch videos of these protests, like if you watch a compilation on The New York Times, say you do see protests uh, both in, in the West, in Uyghur territory, and you also see uh, them at large universities. And it's kind of the breadth that Victor was talking about earlier of these protests. For you, what, what are you, what are the sort of you looking for to be like, okay, here's where these protests are going uh, as time goes on? Well, I, I think very much as Gabby mentioned, the fact that these are about, you know, that you've got Uyghurs protesting in places like Urumqi and you've got Han Chinese protesting in other parts of the country, all over the country. It shows that it's not just about COVID anymore. It's about other, it's about the inability to speak out about what's happening in your area. So, so yes, it, I, I expect that 
we we could see more protests and and there's definitely tension and there's definitely anger about not just COVID-19, but but just not being able to speak openly over the last three years. And especially at this period of time, not too long after President Xi was elected into a third term. So yeah, it will be a case of what happens next, um, especially with the winter months coming. It's going to get a lot colder. There have been warnings that there will be more COVID-19 cases. So there are expected to be a lot of lockdowns. And, and yes, there's a lot of emphasis on local governments to try and manage the economy as well as the virus spreading. And I think it's going to be very tense. This is, winter is coming. (laughs) Winter winter is coming. coming. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's just going to be a case of seeing what happens, but it, it, yeah, people online are still very much talking about their anger and their frustrations. So the censors might try to silence this, but that anger is still there. Uh, Victor Xi, yesterday, uh, Zhang uh, Zemin died, uh, who's the leader after Tiananmen Square, presided over a lot of Chinese economic growth. Do you think that has any impact on the situation in the country, or do you think it's just purely symbolic? Well, you know, it certainly has provided uh, an opportunity for people to complain about the government in yet another way. Uh, (laughs) So there's been very effusive praise of Jiang Zemin, even though, you know, of course, at the time when he was in power, uh, people derided him, complained about him endlessly, etc. But nonetheless, he is now seen by a lot of people as being a lot more liberal, uh, a lot more open to the world, um, a lot more relaxed about his rule. You know, there, there are a lot of pictures of him smiling, you know, with this big grin. Uh, Xi Jinping uh, does not smile as much. Um, and so, uh, of course, people online, you know, obviously it's uh, <laughs> right in the aftermath of his passing, uh, probably not um, appropriate for the Chinese government to censor the appearance of images of Jiang Zemin online. Uh, they may get around to that eventually. So for now, people can use him as a way to complain about the Chinese government. We've been talking about the recent large protests in China and what long-term impact they might have with Victor Xi, Chair in China and Pacific Relations at UCSD. Thanks for joining us again, Victor. Thank you for having me. Carrie Allen, China Media Analyst at the BBC. Thanks for joining us, Carrie. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And Nancy Chen, Professor at Kellogg School of Business at Northwestern and founder of the China Econ Lab. Thank you so much for joining us, Nancy. Thanks for having me. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been Forum. Thanks for all of your calls and comments. And stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone? hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years, or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.